I'm Wilson Lai. I'm Benjamin Yap. I'm Eli Sands. You're listening to Deep Cut. Imagine Deep and Cut. Um, get ready for an escalation in the arms race of uh, opening theme songs. Oh, shit. Oh, Today? Boy. Yep. Uh, as well? Yep. <laughs> what? <laughs> deep, deep, cut, cut, deep, cut, deep, deep, cut, cut, deep, cut. Incredible job, Eli. <laughs> well done. That was incredible. In the mood for acapella. <laughs> we should release a little EP <laughs> with all these renditions of Deep Cut. <laughs> a mixtape, Deep Cut mixtape. Check out our SoundCloud. <laughs> wow, this blew up. <laughs> Check my SoundCloud. On Deep Cut, we compare a director's most popular film with a personal favorite chosen by one of us. We also discuss that director's life and career to bring in context that helps us view their movies as they may want us to. This episode, we continue our series on director Wong Kar Wai with his 2000 film, In the Mood for Love. This is a fake deep cut pick because <laughs> if you know Wong Kar Wai, you know In the Mood for Love. But fuck it, we make the rules. So this is my deep cut pick. <laughs> yeah. And at least for me, it is Wong's enduring masterpiece. Ooh. The film is set in 1960s Hong Kong. It's about two neighbors who grow close when they both figure out that they're respective spouses are cheating on the both of them with each other. It is a tale of smoldering yearning and desire, one of the most celebrated films of the 21st century. It premiered at the Cannes Film Festival of that year where it was nominated for Palme d'Or and Tony Leung won the award for Best Actor. Deserved. In a 2016 poll by the BBC, it was voted the second best film of the 21st century. Second only to David Lynch's Mulholland Drive. Ooh, interesting. Which is a very long-winded way to say that this is a film with many, many critical admirers around the world, and it's not really a deep cut. Yeah. <laughs> I guess when when planning out this season of deep cut, we took some liberties uh, when choosing our popular pick. But We're changing definitions. <laughs> yeah. Look at us. We're the captain now. Look at me. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe let's begin with our general reaction to this film. We've all seen this before, of course, multiple times, and I would love to hear how you feel about this film. We're <laughs> <laughs> just grinning at the camera. Oh, we'll sit after you. Oh, thank you, my dear Eli. Um, <laughs> even though this is sort of my most unfamiliar Wong film, maybe second to 2046 and Ashes of Time, like I've seen this only like four times. <laughs> um, <laughs> only four times. <laughs> so I would call it, quote unquote, my <laughs> my least familiar Wong film. In the mood for love. (laughs) (laughs) And also because I guess it doesn't really have that connection to my heart as strongly as 
as chunking and fallen angels do but i think it's really undeniable that this is his best film i wrote this in my letterbox review <laughs> someone came at you in the comments and someone came for me in my comments i don't even know this person just follows me and Hilarious. i i wrote in my review oh even though it's not my favorite wong kar wai film it is hands down the best hot wong kar wai film and they commented on my review oh if it's the best then why do you have it on fourth on your wong kar wai ranking <laughs> Like, whoa, dude. <laughs> whoa, sorry. I said it was the best. It doesn't mean that I love it more. That's how rankings work, Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> rankings are objective. <laughs> it's okay. No publicity is bad publicity. Thank you for commenting on my letterbox review. <laughs> I do agree. I think that it's really great following Wong's career chronologically because this, compared to the previous two movies that we've watched, feels like a very mature filmmaker yeah. someone who once had energy like fireworks like explosions like little lightning in a bottles we kept on using that every episode mm. but this this feels zeroed in this feels focused this feels meticulously thought out planned and executed mm -hmm. and i'm sure the shooting took fucking forever mm. maybe on set wasn't much different than being on set with happy together or right. some of the other wong films but you really feel his steady hand with this he doesn't there's no room to breathe right he doesn't give you a character monologue carrying you through the film he has enough faith in the actions and dialogues that he's written for these characters and that progression and those emotions carrying us through the film and i think that is a mark of a director who is very confident and very sure of exactly what he wants mm -hmm. in the final edit mm. that is why i i say this is the most focused wong has been in his career and maybe will ever be like this is sort of peak quality right here and tony and maggie like oh my god <laughs> We will we will keep on going, but yeah, Tony and Maggie. Tony and Maggie. Everything that Tony and Maggie are not doing. Mm. Not doing. Mm. Oh, man. She even cries with restraint. It's crazy. I, and Tony's little brow bars. I know we're going to be talking more about them, yeah. but like, oh, the way his brow moves. Mm. What he can do with his forehead. <laughs> forehead game out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? This guy gives good forehead. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think of the film <laughs> in the mood for a hit no sorry <laughs> i had to go there anyway no <laughs> children wailing in the okay. background. i've been wondering when it would be my turn to be the villain of the pod oh, yeah. <laughs> i'm ready and i totally agree that in the mood for love is really superbly crafted and undeniable unimpeachable there are so many moments and choices that feel both composed and purposeful but also fresh and innovative as an example the moments when mr chow and mrs chan are sitting across the table from each other in the diner and there's this quick pan that goes from behind their heads over to their faces in profile. These moments that feel fresh and they have a pulse mm. and they breathe very shallowly. Like they're, I suppose what I'm trying to say is that In the Mood for Love is a movie that's filled with moments that really 
take a small breath out of you and a little gasp. And even as I'm talking about it, I see all these moments. I see the stairs in slow motion going to get the noodles, these shots that just float, the way that time doesn't jump between shots, but it just sort of slips. It's very graceful. It's like a slow dance. At the same time, on this viewing, I felt it to be a little bit more blank than I wanted it to be. Mm. I miss some of the energy of those prior two movies that we are talking about, where it's giving you a lot, but still leaving you a lot of room to fill in your own personal significance. I feel like I'm being given a little bit less in this movie, and it's more vacuous, which allows you a lot of room to step in, but... I guess just at this point in my life, I'm responding more to Happy Together, which is giving you a lot of energy Mm. and still leaving room for that personal significance. I will also say that this is the 2020 update that I am the most disappointed in or Mm. feel like it's a new movie entirely. And that is purely because the Reds have been taken out into the backyard and shot. (laughs) (laughs) Things look very green and that actually makes it feel like a different movie to me. Oh, it is oh so greed. It was oh so greed. I am disappointed in that. And the contrast is hiked up a lot. Oh, really? I feel like you could really tell the highlights and the shadows on the face much more strongly in this color edit than in the previous one. Do you like that? I think it adds a little bit. And I think that's one of the things that I'm like, oh, I I sort of like this. But throwing everything in, like, that green really was a little off-putting. Or, like, I had to recalibrate myself to the film because... Exactly. In the Mood for Love is so known for its reds. Yeah. Especially, you can really tell it in all, like, the Cheongsams that Maggie wears. Quite a few of them do feel drowned out of color sometimes. I know. It's so disappointing. And it's quite unfortunate. It is quite unfortunate. Yeah. But nothing comes close to the fallen angels (laughs) cropping. (laughs) Oh, man. Ben, how did you feel on this reviewing? In terms of the restoration stuff, once again, I didn't notice and I didn't really care. (laughs) I'm firmly on this hill that I will lose on and I will die on. Hey, it's okay because Wong Kar Wai will be there right next to you. Yeah, I'm with this man. (laughs) But it's not really that I'm with him on the changes and I can understand why people prefer the lusher reds and colors. But it really doesn't change how the movie makes me feel. Mm. Yeah. in the grand scheme of things because here we're basically looking at like the values of saturation and that's not what film is to me how writ the writ is doesn't affect how I feel about this relationship <laughs> between Mrs. Chan and Mrs. Chow like that's kind of where I'm coming from Yeah. in terms of how the movie makes me feel this is essentially my favourite film of all time <laughs> right now i love how with one director we are able to get <laughs> one director both of us like knock out both of our favorite movies of all time and happy together is like a top 10 for me yeah, easily. yeah. this this man's a hitter he hits that's three separate movies we've covered guys that's three different movies i think part of it is also maybe nostalgia in a weird way for this film, it's one of the early big art house films I saw that I really liked. Mm. And I'm sure if I wanted to make an argument for it, I could find another film that I could say, oh, you know, this is my top film. I'm sure I could find another film. But I just have such a strong feeling for this film because of what I think is an untouchable craft mm. that is just impossible to ignore. Possible to <laughs> ignore. <laughs> yeah. Nice. And I think... 
what you were talking about access, I guess, with the characters, Eli, compared to Happy Together and Chunking. I think for this one, there's no voiceover. That's true. Everything is played out through face. So everything becomes buried. Whereas Wong in previous films has always relied on voiceover to give the interior life of the characters life yeah. and to yeah. give you access to it. But here he has thrown that device away. Yeah. And I think he has succeeded without that crutch yeah. because of the use of cinematography, music, and masterful acting from Tony and Maggie. I love this film because of the depths of feeling it can conjure in a viewer mm-hmm. in a way that is like alchemy in a way that is very difficult to pin down. And I feel like we say it is a lot with Wong, but it's just true because his methods are unconventional, which is why the the films that he comes up with are unconventional, but they work because Wong knows what works. Mm. He might not know how to get there on day one, (laughs) but he knows what works at day, I don't know. (laughs) Day whenever he figures it out. 400. (laughs) Yeah. That's my relationship with In the Move for Love. And full disclaimer being the person who kind of structured their thesis around trying to rip off In the Move for Love in some sense. So (laughs) not rip off. That's how much I liked it. It just shows the amount of respect you have towards Wong Kar Wai. Yes, that's my respect. But also, I kind of learned through that that it is very difficult to emulate because you need the time that Wong has to make this film to make it the way that is you can't really in the context of a student film try to create something within a constricted shoot schedule that you can try and write because he's not writing his films yeah it's true so let me use this as a segue into some context about the production of this film Ooh, smooth segue (laughs) this film went through a 15 month production process (laughs) oh my god okay 15 months and here on our last episode, we're talking about how after Happy Together, he was like, oh, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> this is a 15-month process, which is on and off shoots. So it's not that they shot for 15 months straight. Maggie was living in Paris. Tony was probably living in Hong Kong. And they shot this film in Bangkok, most of it. And some of it in Hong Kong. And they were shooting this film semi-concurrently also with its informal sequel 2046 <laughs> at the same time which was like semi-scripted on the fly as well within the move for love i'm not really sure how those production timelines intersect but that's what i'm reading so these were all kind of ideated at the same time these two stories hmm. but this project started in many different forms in its infancy it was supposed to be a kind of anthology film similar to chunking where it was supposed to be three stories centered around food and Essentially, Wong ran away with one of the stories, which was centered on Maggie and Tony as two characters who like to eat noodles together in a store. In the food for love. Mm. Yeah. So that's where it started. And then he obviously took that and just went in a completely different direction. You'll see production stills of Tony with a suave mustache that you'll never see in this (laughs) final cut of the film. Whoa. Yeah, it says in the Wong Kar Wai Stephen Teo book Mm -hmm. that he did like shoot in the mood for love over the 15-month period and then towards the end of that 15 month period he also started shooting scenes for 2046 right but continued shooting 2046 after in a mood for love was finished Hmm. let me tell you something i just learned like an hour ago watching this very very cute conference thing at the toronto international film festival with tony and maggie for this film this film premiered at Cannes one week after it wrapped its final reshoot. Oh my goodness. (laughs) This film wrapped four different times because they would wrap and then they would call them back over and over again to 
shoot reshoots to help stitch scenes together. Because Wong was figuring out a fly, he came in with no script, he just had a sense of what kind of film he was trying to make. And then in the first, I think, six to nine months, he was essentially writing the script with Tony and Maggie through filming scenes that he thought of and then those scenes would inspire him to write other scenes and then he would just do this for as long as it would take for him to finally find out what shape this film wanted to be hmm. and they finished editing the night before it premiered at Cannes. and which this started a tradition with wong finishing his films days before its cons premiere <laughs> which with 2046 and the grandmaster and the grandmaster even getting a recut after its con premiere. I don't think any other filmmaker on the planet works like this and is allowed to work like this. <laughs> Honestly. No. I mean, clearly with the success of this film, Wong knows how to make this work. And I mean, he also mentioned that the fact that Khan gave him a deadline, which is the premiere, helped him finish the film because he could have been editing forever because they shot 30 times the length of the film. 30 times? Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, the cinematographer was replaced twice. So at first it was Christopher Doyle. Then we also have Mark Lee Pingbing. And also we have Kwan Peng Leung stepping in. So it's three different cinematographers coming in because it just took so long that they had to be replaced. And now we don't know who shot what, <laughs> honestly. And they're all just given kind of equal billing. It really does feel like a Mark Leaping Bin movie, though. Mm, I feel that way, too. Much more than any of Wong's other films, the slow camera moves, the lateral movements that Mark Lee Ping Bin uses in a lot of his films with Ho Shao Shen mm. is utilized a lot in In the Mood for Love. Like you just look at Flowers of Shanghai, mm. you will you can really see like a very quick correlation between how that film moves its camera and how In the Mood for Love also moves its camera. Mm. I guess in my head, I would attribute a lot of the, the look of this film to, to Mark. I have that same feeling, but watching the kind of BTS stuff, I don't know whether I think that's true because there's a key lateral movement scene when they're play acting and it goes past a bunch of prison bars mm -hmm. and there is a BTS shot of Crystal Chris Doyle right? talking it's about Chris. it. Yeah. yeah, And also, apparently, Wong had to shape what Mark Lee was doing more because he had to bring him into his universe, you know, the Wong Kar Wai mind. So he was apparently, allegedly, more hands-on with giving Mark directions in terms of what he wanted right but this is all kind of speculation it doesn't really matter film looks good <laughs> yeah yeah it looks fucking incredible i feel like when wong decides to be like hey we're not gonna do handheld mm. we're gonna like set this camera down on a tripod we're gonna set this camera down on a track mm. like we're gonna go slow and steady with this baby <laughs> and when he switches it up you know that he means it right because most of his prior movies were were shot very run and gun. Yeah. So when he makes the switch to go more slow and steady, there has to be a lot of intention behind it. The idea of restraint, it just covers this entire film in so many different aspects. Maybe the one aspect that it doesn't really do it in is production design. And William Chang just really goes off the fucking chain here. It's like everything is so gorgeous in this movie. Yes. Every background, every like plant pot. The wallpaper. The wallpaper, the clocks. Everything feels so appropriate to that time period, but also so like evocative and emotional for something that I've not ever been alive for. And the Chung Sams, but we'll talk about the Chung Sams. Yes, that's what I learned today, that William Chang was the fucking goat on this and did production design and fucking costumes. The king. He was picking the fabrics 
for the Chongsons. Oh my god. And editing. Let's not forget. Wait, what the fuck? <laughs> he edited? I'm pretty sure. I'm so pretty he's sure. just doing all the work to make this look fucking amazing in terms of like putting the thing in front of the camera. Yeah, he edited a, a with Wang Ming Lam. Wow. This guy does everything. <laughs> Something in the camera movement that I noticed this time that I really love is a palindrome-like quality where a shot will drift over somewhere, follow a character, and drift back following another character. It's just a little poetic thing to do that feels very graceful. One of the best examples is in the hotel room with that mirror shot. One of the mirror shots tracks first to see Tony writing and then tracks left to see Maggie lounging. But when you track, he's just looking at different reflections of this three-paneled mirror. Like, it's not of them, it's of their reflections. And Mm. I freak out whenever I see that shot and I, like, know that it's going to go the other direction. It's going to, (laughs) like, palindrome it up and I, (laughs) like, freak out because I know it's going to happen. It's going to be glorious. Wilson clapping and cheering at the screen as (laughs) Wong moves the camera so slowly. (laughs) The use of mirrors here to energize those lateral movements is also amazing. Mm. And like, they don't feel so constructed. Like, it feels organic to the place. Like, he found the reflection rather than, oh, let's do this right now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, the one I'm thinking about is when they're stuck in Tony's room. And then I think he's at the desk. And then it pans from him to her on the bed. And then to the mirror on the closet door and it's him again. That's another one. (laughs) It's the beauty about having to be locked in and shoot three quarters of a movie in a fucking room. Like you have to get creative somehow. (laughs) That's how you get creative. They have to cut a hole in the cupboard. And where's where's Doyle or Mark Leo? Like where are they? (laughs) Anyway, I wanted to talk about the thing that you said Wilson, when you were talking about your general reaction, which is that it felt so zeroed in, but knowing this extremely hectic production process where there was no sense of the ending, where the actors, and Maggie in particular, was struggling with how confused she was the whole time. She says this, Mm -hmm. that she was frustrated. It is a marvel that this came out feeling so zeroed in and so focused. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what both of you think about how, how you think he's able to do this. Yeah. It's hard. Mm. I think this being more closely linked to Wong's childhood, so something closer to like Days of Being Wild, Mm. where it's set in the 60s in Hong Kong, and something of such a distinct memory to someone like Wong, like the way it felt, the places, the people, maybe in his memory... That's how he views it as, right? Whereas with Chungking and with Happy Together, he's trying to craft these wild scenarios, right? For these actors to play within. This feels more like, oh, let me try to like recapture this memory that is very specific Mm -hmm. and very personal to me. And I want to get it right and I want to get it perfect. And this is not about the story of the film. He was definitely not having an affair when he was like three years old. Um, but <laughs> but it's capturing the time and it capturing the place. And I think that is already so important to Wong making movies. 
is time and place. Like story is important, but for Wong, he really holds these all in high priority next to each other. I think when he's very sure about something and that something being this story between Tony and Maggie, you can sort of tell how he like veers off. He cuts off the two other stories in this trilogy that he's making Mm. because he's very sold on this. And yes, he's trying to like shoot in a lot of directions like he does with his other films. But this, he's trying to achieve one thing. Like the the process is very similar, but his intention is very different with this movie. Like he has one intention and he's exactly. going in a hundred directions, but it's all circling back yeah. to the same objective. Whereas something like Chunking might feel a bit more freewheeling where you're not sure where it's going to go. But this one, because it has that almost a tragic shape like a classic tragedy shape yes where things will come back on themselves and you will feel sad that's kind of like a very rough idea of what a tragic shape looks like right so it feels so concise in terms of like what he's trying to achieve and i like what you're talking about with space because in this film there are only so many different locations despite a film taking 15 freaking months to shoot Mm -hmm. like it's very specific about the places that he goes to and i'm sure many locations were left on the edit room floor but here through the edit they kind of figured out that the repetition of spaces and the revisiting of spaces is very important because here he's trying to create a certain kind of repetition and rhythm through the narrative and then eventually losing those spaces as the story enters its final Mm. stretch the way that things fade out the kind of coherent search that wilson is describing reminds me of what ben has said in prior episodes about wong kar wai having a single-minded pursuit of some emotional experience and really zeroing in on that but it's subtly different because here we're talking less about purely style and more a combination of style and narrative here yeah like the actual story events and the way that they circle and repeat Mm. right are part of the equation now and we have noted how both chunking express and happy together Mm -hmm. had a looser narrative flow i'm sure wong shat himself (laughs) When he when he figured out the story for this movie, like you, he really. Fu- <laughs> no, just leave it there. <laughs> like you would really feel like you struck gold with this premise here, mm. because I think the amount of like feeling of unrequited love from both sides, from all four sides, you could even go all four sides. You could mine and mine and mine so much emotion out of this premise. Mm. That's why he probably shot himself. <laughs> I've said this before, but it's a firecracker of a premise. Like, you tell me this as a pitch, I'm like, oh, okay, I'm sold. Because it seems like you can't fuck this up. (laughs) You just need to make it work. But of course, he's doing it in like the kind of Wong way where he's going to... Yeah, the approach is so unique and incredible. And how in the first act, you as a viewer, if you're watching it for the first time, you're slowly figuring things out Mm. while they figure it out. Like he's not giving you everything on a plate like usually does. Like a Wong Kar Wai monologue tells you so much. Mm. It gets you to the really heart of the character. But... Here, he realizes that his knowledge as a storyteller is his advantage, right? And slowly ladling out information Mm. works for this story because it's so potent. It can contain so much within it rather than going off in all directions. Not saying that whichever one is better, but 
He really relishes being on a higher plane of story knowledge than you, and everything from why Mrs. Chan wants to get two handbags for her boss, which gets revealed in the next scene, Mm. to whether or not they are role-playing as each other's spouses or actually talking as themselves. The movie takes on this very curious dynamic in the middle section of the movie when you enter every scene not knowing who they are speaking as, Mm. themselves or their spouses. Fun fact. Apparently, those discussing about how they might make Tony and Maggie also play these spouses. But obviously, that would be so fucking confusing. <laughs> yeah. but I, I understand where he's coming from. He's thinking about that doubling and that inability to tell who is speaking in that moment. And I think those conversations are the ones I love the most because in terms of trying to tell you what is happening through the confusion of are they talking as themselves or as their spouses to each other? Yeah. It's very interesting, engaging exercise as a viewer. Oh, yeah. You said earlier that Maggie had a lot of trouble and was very confused. Mm. I think that works in the movie's advantage, even though it really frustrates the actors Mm. because they're in that headspace of confusion, which leads you as an audience member to also be in this state of confusion. I'm sure the characters themselves are confused about how they stand in this situation anyways. Mm. It's a whole confusion circle. Mm. (laughs) Don't try to understand it. Feel it. <laughs> to quote nothing in particular, that is just something I came up with. Tenet? It's from Tenet. <laughs> is it? It's from Tenet. <laughs> A wild thought mine pops up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for Eli to become the villain here, but I wanted to talk about how I was just looking at people who were lukewarm on this film on Letterbox. <laughs> You're trying to hunt them down, huh? No, I'm just like, cu- I was very, I'm very curious about why somebody might dislike this film. And I, honestly, as I was watching it this time, I was trying to poke holes in the film myself. I was trying to do that exercise. Yeah. I think the big thing that it comes down to is that some people find that it is a kind of style over substance affair and that it is a somewhat shallow film. I can't necessarily fight back against that because when you're trying to say what is substance, that's extremely subjective. Oh, for sure. Kind of judgment. What what do you think is substance? Mm -hmm. What I think this film does well is that it is using style to tell a story. Yeah. Whether it's through the repetition of shots and spaces and music. Yes. I think he does this better in this film than his other films because the repetitions feel extremely considered. Yeah, I I would agree. It's more intentional. Mm. It is... It's there for a reason. There's more in purpose... Hmm. behind it but i would say that my pushback against in the mood for love if there are any pushbacks Mm -hmm. i would say that it's very airtight like eli said i don't think wong really gives you any room for you to feel out something else it feels very controlled and some would say maybe too controlled Mm -hmm. but it's just all in him striving for perfection and i understand that i get that but that's what i would push back against In our episode on Carol, I think we talked about how there's a feeling that I got that's like, yeah, everything's perfect. But on the other hand, everything's perfect. Mm. It's undeniably well made. And there's something that at this point in my life doesn't excite me as much. Like my top three picks of 2021 were The Inheritance, We're All Going to the World's Fair, and Mad God, which are all movies that trouble themselves and complicate themselves. And again, this is a me thing it's not anything the movie's doing wrong but i'm looking for more complication in what i watch Mm. complication in terms of how it's constructed or like what it leads you to think about good question 
I mean, In the Mood for Love is complicated in its construction, certainly. It is throwing a lot of curveballs with those questions of what is performance, what is authentic feeling. Mm. But maybe it is that question of what I'm coming away from the movie with. I feel a lot more purpose in the way the movie sort of peters out this time around. Mm -hmm. It is literally about how the strength of those memories fade for these characters while also remaining emotional hot points. And time begins to move ahead exponentially quickly. But I find that that just isn't sticking to my ribs right now. Mm-hmm. I'm very purposely trying to couch this. But I understand where you're coming from. And honestly, if somebody tells me that they think this film is shallow, I can't really say anything against that. Because it is essentially a film about two people who like each other, but because of their circumstances, do not find that they can be together. That's the whole thing. It doesn't move past that. It is exploring that space essentially for the entire film. I can see why someone might find that shallow. And I think for me, I like it because it is digging so deep into this in a very fresh and exciting way. Mm. And I kind of disagree that he is working in a way more controlled than Chongqing or Happy Together because Mm. in watching this again, yes, the edit is very tight and the repetitions are tight. But when I think about how very the shots are and the way that different scenes are covered that's where i feel like there is still a little bit of that one car messiness of experimentation that mm. excites me the first thing that comes to mind is that diner scene with its whip pans when mm-hmm. they start talking about the affair for the first time this is like maybe 20 30 minutes into the movie and right. the two leads finally talk to each other and reveal to each other that they have suspected their own spouses of the affair between each other that's when the movie starts opening up into the performative aspects between them and them kind of skating around the rink of whether they're going to start falling in love with each other. Yeah, right. That diner scene, I think, is interesting. And also, what I found almost off-putting is the very first time you hear Shigeru Umebayashi's theme, the very signature theme that you hear. Umeji's theme. Yeah, Umeji's theme. Which we have recreated a cappella. Yes. That first time you hear it is when you see Mrs. Chan go to buy noodles, and then shortly after, Mr. Chow goes to buy noodles. And at that point, there is, as far as the viewer knows, zero spark between them. And it's a strange place to put that kind of needle drop, because there's no meaning behind it. Noodle drop. (laughs) Noodle drop, that's good. (laughs) But there's no meaning behind that in that first time you hear that, but it's just trying to set up the motif. He uses it a bunch of times, and it's only maybe, I think, the third or fourth time you hear it. It starts to cultivate meaning as a way to link them emotionally. If anything, it begins as a theme of loneliness, more than anything. I wrote down the exact same thing in my notes. I was starting to think about the ways in which the significance of that piece of music changes. I totally agree. It starts as a marker of their individual loneliness and then the loneliness that they share Mm. and then the intimacy that they share and the frustration that they share. Then at the end of the movie, the final time that you hear sort of this theme, it becomes a variation of itself. Mm -hmm. It's when he's at Angkor Wat. It's like the memory has become distorted, Mm. but still contains a rawness. So I think these kinds of moments where like the calculated parts of In the Move of Love kind of betray themselves, where it feels slightly 
more cobbled together than it seems <laughs> is where I'm like, yeah, this still feels organic. It is definitely organic and, and spontaneous. Yeah. But I think the environment that it's like set in mm. is the reason why it makes it feel so controlled. You have these set locations, you have these set characters, you barely see anyone aside from these two people. Mm. Whereas Happy Together, Chunking, they're sprawling. You have people on streets. You have more than like six speaking characters per like movie that have their own monologues and so much shit with them it really just like brings so much to you that's why this feels so different and controlled because he's like really cutting out a lot of other elements that he usually has in his films right the fragmentation of spaces is something that i wanted to return to mm. because he's doing a couple of things both visually and sonically that are making spaces feel both a little claustrophobic and expansive in the ways that they're representing what the characters are feeling and taking those feelings out of them and putting them onto the screen one way is frame obstruction. There are usually walls in the way. And there's moments when frame obstruction is removed. Feels like, whoa. There's a moment towards the end when Mrs. Chan is watching her landlord's play Mahjong. And we're seeing it from where we usually are behind the door frame. Mm. And the camera pushes into the room. And it's like that moment in Mommy mm. when the aspect ratio widens out. Yes. And it's like, <laughs> boom, whoa. Another thing that Wong is doing is, even though we're seeing very few people, he's using off-screen sound mm. to expand the world and the environment. There are times when you're in a room and you're listening to what's happening on the other side of the wall. There are workplaces where you hear other people working in adjacent rooms and other spaces. These are things that make the world feel a little bit larger than it actually is by implication. Yeah. And in a way, because you're in such a contained space on screen, it feels all the more lonely. Mm. Yeah. Because you're missing out on those things that you're not seeing. Yeah. And more importantly, I guess for the plot reasons, you hear the phone calls between their respective spouses yeah. that confirms to you as an audience that they are having an affair, but you, you never get to see their faces throughout the film. But I think these phone conversations are so important in order for you to just believe that they're having an affair really early on. Mm. They only exist sonically. So many things to respond to, to what you just <laughs> said. You're like... I feel like I can talk about this one for like three hours. But anyway, <laughs> the way that they frame spaces is such that you're very rarely seeing a room in its totality. Yes. You're either seeing it through a doorway or scenes are just set in hallways rather than in actual rooms, <laughs> which like I always forget. And I find it such an interesting choice because so many scenes happen in the door between the apartments. Right. And in the hallway that is within each apartment rather than in the rooms. The main rooms that you get access to, aside from the outside spaces, are the one time they get stuck in Mr. Chow's room and when they go to the hotel and write the novel together. That's like the only time you really get a bigger sense of space, mm -hmm. which is also really interesting because those are the scenes where they're more intimately connected. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely not a coincidence. And it makes you feel that sense of they are moving through liminal spaces throughout the film, but then they find togetherness together right. in these two spaces, in those two specific instances. I think that's a very palpable thing that you don't really need to explain, but the effect is there. Mm -hmm. Something fascinating to me is when those spaces start to become 
the literal text of their subjectivity. For example, when Mrs. Chan is sort of ruminating to herself later on in the movie, and then you get an intercut to this long, empty hallway with a red curtain flowing in the wind. Mm. Super simple, very tactile, and it tells you everything you need to know about what she's feeling. Man, that rushing up the stairs stuff, that's like... Oh, I can't wait. Why don't we talk about it? (laughs) I was like, when are we going to talk about it? (laughs) Fucking incredible, man. This scene, (laughs) it's such another outlier, you know? It's another one of those outlier scenes where you go from all this like stoic stuff and then bam, she's going up the stairs, she's going down the stairs. All these agitated cuts. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that modulation in this film is why it stays so engaging. I was trying to watch it and I was going to take a break for lunch and I just didn't have lunch until after I watched it. (laughs) Because even though they keep on returning to these places, nothing's the same. Mm. He always finds a way to shoot it differently or like maybe, yes, some shot placements like down the staircase is the the same tilt down, but Maggie's always wearing a different chansam. Things are always changing and it's the variation of everything and how far you vary it from what is normal is what keeps you engaged. I learned a vocabulary word this week that I want to <laughs> bring in here. Yes. The word is Gesamtkunstwerk. My God. Gesamtkunstwerk <laughs> is a German term meaning total work of art. It is oh. pulling in techniques and tools from other mediums into one piece. What Ben just said about the variation and these different dynamics that still feel coherent reminds me of something like a symphony Mm. and the different movements of a symphony and how it can take a theme and vary it and put it into a new emotional context. One of the great strengths of In the Mood for Love is that it does feel in its structure and variation like a piece of music and also, of course, its grace feels like dance. Mm. Well said. Is it okay to, to hop onto a different track? Yes. Is it villain time? It's, it's, it's villain. <laughs> Ben's waiting for you to fight back against this movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. I mean, here's the thing. It really is undeniably pretty perfectly made. Yeah. In the same way that for all of us, our favorite picks from Wong's filmography are things that escape some description. There's something that's just maybe missing for me here if i can put a tiny nitpick onto the table (laughs) whenever a movie plays a sound from a sound library that i've heard before it's like oh (laughs) man come on what's the sound what's the sound it is the doors in the apartment both opening and closing i've heard those sounds 50 million times before Mm. it's disappointing I want to hear new sounds. You're on a set with doors. Just record them opening and closing. That's your nitpick? Yeah. I was expecting something way more incisive. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, well. How does how, how can Ben fight back against door sounds? <laughs> you can't. It's a, it's a watertight argument. Those sounds have been used before. They were not recorded on set. Bummer. But I do mean it when I say that the things that aren't there for me are truly subjective. It's just not piercing me. Mm. I totally understand because I know the kind of films that excite you, Eli. (laughs) And they're the ones that are things that unravel at the end. Yeah. When I look at your 2021 picks, you're looking for films that are, at the end of the film, hopefully causing your mind to go elsewhere. Whereas, The Move for Love is a closed universe. It is Mm -hmm. is like an elaborate timepiece. Right. Which is very fitting because you keep looking at this 
clock in this film. And <laughs> I think In the Move for Love is this immaculate timepiece. And I can see why some people are less excited by that. Because once you mm. kind of look at it, it's pretty. Then that's kind of it. It's sort of a closed loop that is not really closed with 2046. <laughs> oh. True. <laughs> uh, <laughs> true. <laughs> but when you look at it on its own, it, it feels like that closed loop. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes. yes, the ending, their individual fates are ambiguous, but yeah, intertwined fate is set. It's set in stone. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. they will never be together. <laughs> and if you watch any of the alternate ending stuff or read about anything, you'll have the same conclusion that honestly, it only makes sense that they should never be together because the affair is only so powerful because they never do anything about it. Yeah. Right. The fantasy of the affair is better than the affair itself. Right. Ben, thank you for describing my taste. Th- that felt like it resonated. Great. Ben, do me, do me, do me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me think. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the spot like that. Don't do me. You don't need to do me. I'll see if you feel like it. <laughs> I'll think about it. <laughs> okay, think about it. Think about it. Come back to me. I would be remiss if we don't spend more time talking about Maggie's performance because this is the only film in the series in which she stars in. Oh. And I think she appears a little in 2046, if I'm not wrong. Very, very, very brief. Spoilers, spoilers. I haven't seen it yet. But Tony is in all these fucking films. <laughs> <laughs> but Maggie is only in this one for our series. So let me just tell you about the one moment that got me in this one. Because I think the thing I was looking for when I went to rewatch it, I was like, is this film going to emotionally, viscerally get me again? Like, can it do that even though I know all the beats? Even though I know what's coming? Even though I know what's the ending? And it does. And the moment in this one is when we see Mrs. Chan go back to the apartment, talking to Swen. you were going to say this moment. And she goes to the window and she just has a look. Oh, million dollar look. Yes. That's the moment. (laughs) Fucking incredible. What she does in this movie is otherworldly. You think that Tony is the heavy hitter in this one, but no, it's Maggie. It's Maggie. She does so much of the um, carrying the emotional weight Mm. of having to deal with the realization that her husband is having an affair with with Mr. Chow's wife. And then when they both catch feelings, she somehow bears the emotional brunt of a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, You really feel it so much from her side of things. And yes, the movie ends with him letting go mm. and like speaking his secret into the hole. But my heart is still with Mrs. Chan through that very end. Like I honestly don't care too much about what Mr. Chow does. <laughs> Even though that's all the whole point of the next <laughs> movie. The next film is all about him. <laughs> this is another point where I'm a little disappointed in the movie because she does sort of drop off the map after she visits the old apartment, even in the sequence when Mr. Chow is in Singapore and maybe Mrs. Chan breaks into his room to take her slippers back. I read that as something of a projection on his part. Mm. I miss her subjectivity in the end. Yeah, I feel that. I'm thinking about how earlier Ben said that the style almost literally is the substance of their feelings. Mm. And everything that visual and sound are doing is embodying those feelings. Those moments when the actors step a little bit above the style to perform those feelings really slap me across the face. Yeah. I'm thinking of there's a shot when 
Tony is standing with this face right in front of the camera and he just sort of furrows his brow a little bit and moves his head a couple of ways and it's so powerful with so little again the forehead acting Mm -hmm. and yeah this moment when Maggie is back in the old apartment I once heard something that it is always more emotionally powerful to watch an actor hold back tears rather than to cry and that is like exhibit A to that. Mm. Mm. It's also really interesting when I think about Maggie's performance. There's an early scene when she's talking to Mr. Chow's wife. Oh, and it's just her close up. It's just her and... Oh, you can see it in her eyes as well. Oh, You see everything. Oh. You know she's thinking about all this stuff. And this is right before like something that takes you out a little bit where you hear the two spouses talk to each other and Mrs. Chow talks to the person she's cheating with. She says, it's your wife. Yeah. And like that's the scene right before. But somehow in that scene, she is able to convey that she is suspecting something even though you have zero context right now at this point of what is going on but the only thing that this film has kind of given you in the first few scenes is snippets of things that talk about cheating spouses Mm -hmm. you have a boss who's cheating and she's helping out and this talk about the handbags which is kind of unrelated at that point in time and this shot this close-up does all the work talking about restraint i find it really interesting that the kind of big cry scene that happens at the end when they rehearse their breakup Mm. that hits Mrs. Chan really hard. I find that one really interesting because I would expect myself to feel like, oh, you know, this is maybe too much. Like, this film has gone so restrained this whole time and now you have this big cry scene, but it works really well because it is the well breaking. It is right there. Mm -hmm. And also, it is this strange scene where the breakup happens and then it loops back on itself and then they're talking again. So the breakup is fake, rehearsed, Mm -hmm. and they're kind of coming together again and it creates such a strange emotional beat in which they then leave together. So it's like watching two people break up and then seeing them leave together to question mark, maybe consummate affair, left completely ambiguous. Mm -hmm. That really works for me. So I think that is kind of like coupling the work of Maggie and as well as the kind of narrative rhythm of this scene. That's sort of like a standout scene for me as well. Also because you have established a pattern prior in the film of them rehearsing Mm. as their respective spouses who you're getting cheated on with. They're acting as them, right? Except for that time where Maggie's trying to get the truth out of her husband and she's trying to practice. Mm. And that's also a pretty great scene. But this last one is where they both play themselves. Mm -hmm. Instead of being like, what do I think this guy will say? You're just being like, I'm just going to say what I'm going to say now. And we'll just see how it goes. And that's why setting up this idea of them playing roles and acting out previously is so important to get that last one in because Mm. before you're sort of like this is fun (laughs) we're above the story here like they Mm. they feel like they're in control right but then when you get to this last moment where this is a decision that they have to make for themselves right then basically right then the weight is crushing that's why maggie breaks all these different role-playing scenes clicked so much more for me this time Mm. when I saw that last scene and I was like, oh, he's building, he's building it up here for it to just come crashing down at this moment. Like it's all planned. Mm. Maybe not planned, (laughs) planned in the edit. (laughs) A question that's occurring to me is why do these characters undergo role play with each other? I have some ideas, but I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Kinky. (laughs) (laughs) Emotional role play, emotional. (laughs) Still kinky. <laughs> I, I mean, I like that they don't 
really kind of talk about why they start doing it. I think most people kind of understand that they're just trying to understand why their spouses would cheat on them. Right. Some readings of this, I think, are about people feeling that the reason they don't get together is because they still feel so rejected and thrown away by their respective spouses that they still want back in on those relationships. Right. Mm. Although I never really think about the other spouses when I watch this film. I'm just like, yeah, you two just need to smooch. Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking about it this time. I was thinking that they should be extremely, extremely, extremely hot. That's, that's all I was <laughs> thinking. <What? laughs> I thought you were going somewhere else with this. So okay. <laughs> they like needed to be very, very hot in order to get Tony and Maggie in the first place and then to feel comfortable enough to cheat on Tony and Maggie. Ah. Oh my God. So I'm just like, they have to be like, how do you be more gorgeous than that's Tony why you cannot and see Maggie? Them. Yeah. <laughs> That's why they cannot be seen. That's like a very big reason. They're like, I cannot cast anyone of that level. Yeah. (laughs) Except for maybe Tony and Maggie. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. My thinking is two things. One is what Ben has said, that they are trying to gain more of an understanding of the interiority of their respective spouses. Mm -hmm. And the magnificent thing about the final role play where they are practicing their breakup is that it becomes about them trying to understand each other Mm -hmm. and sort of failing. The other thing is it's a bit of a defense mechanism where they are trying to gain access to an emotion or a memory that they, in the first instance, can't have access to. And when they're practicing their breakup, it's like they're trying to get a memory of something that's going to hurt their feelings before it happens Mm. to cushion the blow. Right. I just think about the ways in which time moves in this movie through the role play. Yes. And this looping back of an event that both hasn't happened yet and is happening now. Mm -hmm. I suppose that could be where some of the wrinkles I'm looking for may lie. Yeah, that maybe is the kind of argument against feeling like it's a closed loop kind of film where because it's so intently investigating this one kind of scenario Mm -hmm. from all sides that if you really want to dig into it, you can. And I think it conjures a very complex emotional landscape, even if the kind of main emotion is about love and yearning and desire. Right. That emotional landscape is quite broad within those terms. Hmm. For me, the role playing fits that category of what I really love about Wong's movies is where you have people doing weird things. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And for a movie so restrained, like this is the weirdest it gets in in the mood for love. Yeah, and there's some humor in those scenes, right? Yeah, and there's some humor. And what I really love about Wong movies is that they're so spontaneous and they're so fun and people do some weird shit that's hard to be societally justifiable, Mm. but Wong makes it work. We talked about this in the Chungking Express episode a lot, but I think this is sort of a much milder version of them doing a weird thing and Wong being able to justify it just by directing the scene well and conveying those emotions clearly to you as a viewer and making you understand where they're coming from. For me, it, it does add a lot of humor and a lot of lightness mm. to the film, which I feel like is there a lot in Wong's earlier stuff, but this is a very sad movie. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> like even more sad than Happy Together, which is also very, very sad, but I think peaks and troughs sadness and happiness. 
on the behavior side, I'm seeing another thread to his other movies, which is characters in moments of duress refusing obstinately to acknowledge emotion, which sometimes comes across as himboism <laughs> in prior characters. <laughs> so Cop 633, Cop 663, I still can't get it right, <laughs> saying that his apartment is crying. Mm. It's Chun Chen not recognizing that Tony Lung was crying into the tape recorder. <laughs> and here, it's Tony Lung saying, why are you crying? It's just a rehearsal. Mm. It's always the guys. Oh <laughs> and it's God. usually Tony Lung. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in this scene, him saying that is a little stupid. No, he's definitely trying to comfort her, though. But if you look at the shot of him, he has this thousand-yard stare when he's comforting her. Mm. He knows it's done. He's dead. Mm. I think all of Wong's films are about this regret of love. And I think the reason I have this nostalgia for it because I like this one because when I was watching it, I was a person that was more about wanting to wallow in my feeling of clovelessness. You know what I mean? Hmm. That's the kind of film that Wong is making. Every single film is about people holding on to things that they shouldn't be fucking holding on to. They need to throw that shit away. Hmm. Every single one wow. that we've talked about. <laughs> second story of Chungking. <laughs> yeah. Yes, also, you see, wow. if you think about Chungking's second story, he holds on to his air stewardess girlfriend and then finds a new air stewardess girlfriend, but he doesn't know she's coming back and then he decides to set up shop in the shop that he met her. <laughs> Which is a terrible idea. Okay. <laughs> That's how you will never forget her. And so that, those are the kind of decisions that they make. They choose to wallow in their sadness. <laughs> yeah. That's a great connection. Honestly, they're idiots. <laughs> Jeez. What does that say about us? <laughs> that we love this? I don't know. I think... I think that's why this whole idea that the fantasy of the affair is better than the affair itself is so strong in this because it's just true. It is universal. The thing that you want the most and you don't get is perfect. Mm -hmm. But it's not perfect. On this, a conversation that runs through this movie that I find really interesting is the personal cost for these characters of being in any relationship. They talk about the independence they lose and living for yourself versus how they feel that their individual selves become subsumed in the couple. It is exactly what you're saying, Ben, that they prefer the idealized view of being in love mm. to the sticky pragmatics of being in a relationship yeah yeah i had a question what the fuck has to do with cambodia at the end what is happening there <laughs> great question i'm very confused i have always wondered every single time i've watched this so this time i decided to do a little research Ooh. to figure out what is happening with this little cambodian detour that the film goes to with the coda yeah, like at the end of Happy Together, it ends on this like big historical note mm. where Deng Xiaoping dies, right? And then at the end of this film, when it travels to Cambodia in 1966, you see, I don't know these people, <laughs> French guy meeting a mm. Cambodian guy. Charles de Gaulle. Yeah. De Gaulle. After doing the research into this, I found that it's an amazing choice. Because this kind of loops back into what we were talking about with Happy Together, which specifically was made because Wong wanted to get out of Hong Kong, wanted to make this film that was a little bit about him trying to escape what was happening with the handover of Hong Kong. And I think this is echoing that sentiment. The reason why he kind of uses this 1966 Cambodia visit from Charles de Gaulle from France. Other really important touchstones in terms of the period of this is that Wong is from Shanghai and his family moved to Hong Kong. And he actually didn't speak a word of Cantonese until probably later in his life after he moved. And so a lot of that is from his childhood. And I'm sure he has memories of living in Hong Kong in the 60s. 
The first thing is, you see when Mrs. Swen leaves, she talks about how Hong Kong is chaotic right now in 1966. 66 and 67 are when these Hong Kong riots happen, where Chinese Communist Party supporters are rioting against British colonial rule, which is where the unrest is coming from, hmm. which is really interesting. That is why Mrs. Swen's family wants to move to America to get away from that protesting that is happening. And what's happening with Cambodia is that the ruler of Cambodia, Sihanouk, this is the last moment of his rule, essentially. Oh. Like when de Gaulle visits, he's hoping that France will help Cambodia so that he could reduce the country's reliance on China. Uh -huh. This moment is when everything goes downhill. And I think that echoes what happens with the central couple. But I think there is an allegory here <laughs> that echoes Wong's feelings about what is happening in Hong Kong yeah. when he makes this film. Yes. And I found some interesting parallels looking into what's happening in Cambodia in 1966 because essentially Sihanouk of Cambodia had to rely on China because he couldn't get this help from France that he was desperately hoping for is an interesting parallel. What happens after this is essentially what leads into the Khmer Rouge rule and the Cambodian genocide. Yeah. It's an interesting event that he's tapping on that doesn't necessarily point to the most chaotic thing that he could be pointing to. He could be using the chaos of Cambodia, mm -hmm. but rather he uses the moment before the chaos right. to mark what is going to happen to the couple and also kind of to Hong Kong. Yeah. Mm. When we talk next episode about 2046, I think the allegory is not hidden behind a lot of shadows anymore. Okay. Everything becomes very political. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Or it feels very politically allegorical. Mm. And I think this time watching Wong's films, I do get a sense that he is a much more political filmmaker than I thought so before. Mm. I think that's one thing that I'm really discovering this time around. And I just think that it would be impossible to make original movies in Hong Kong around the time of The Handover without in some way talking about it. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's very hard because that's what everyone was thinking and talking about. I mean, to give some context to the making of this film, he wanted to shoot a version of this called Summer in Beijing, in Beijing, in a restaurant called Beijing. Because of censorship, he was not able to get the funding to shoot in China. And so that is also part of the history of the making of this film. Fun fact, Summer in Beijing was supposed to be a musical. That's <laughs> What? Really? That's why this week there was a tweet going around talking about what is your white whale? <laughs> what film is your white whale? Like what movie didn't get made but you wish got made? And mm. Summer in Beijing is my white whale. It doesn't exist. <laughs> Wing Xia made a poster for it. Oh yeah, I saw the posters. It very much fully semi-existed someplace. <laughs> in Wong's mind. <laughs> there's a few things I want to watch. Apparently, there's a short film cut called In the Mood for Love 2001 mm. that was screened at Cannes in 2001 that was using footage from early parts of the shooting of In the Mood for Love that were completely excised. It was screened once at a private masterclass at Cannes. Wow. Damn. And I want to see that because apparently it also formed the inspiration for My Blueberry Nights. Ah, <laughs> incredible. And of course, I'm just starving for more Maggie content. So yeah. yeah. It was set in a 7-Eleven? Yes. <laughs> apparently it was set in a 7-Eleven. I don't even know. I want to see this thing. Oh my God. Yeah. Wild. Tony Lung picking up like a hot dog. And Maggie essentially kind of stopped working yeah. regularly after In the Mood for Love. She made clean with her now ex-husband, Olivia Asayas. And I think that was her last major film role and she was done. Wow. I'm putting it out there. Has Maggie Chung seen Bergman Island? <laughs> Can someone <laughs> tell me? <laughs> <laughs> mm.
does she see Olivia Asias in Tim Roth's character? <laughs> Someone DM us. Let us know. Maggie, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Imagine if Mia Henson Love casted Maggie in the Vicky Cripps role. <laughs> oh my god. How fucked would that be? Yo, yo, teaming up to defeat an ex. Yo. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's my white whale. Right <laughs> That's my real white whale. Oh my god. <laughs> Let's wrap this up. Any final thoughts on In a Move for Love? Okay, final thoughts. I really love this movie. It's not my favorite, but it's the best. <laughs> and I think it's really telling that we have different Walker Y faves because there's really a, a Wong for you. Mm. Yeah. With such a limited filmography, it's really incredible that he just has bangers all around that you can discover on your own. And I know I was <laughs> positioning myself as the villain, but even when it's not your favorite one, there's still so much to admire and respond to and feel about. We'll see next week, guys. <laughs> Ooh. 24 to 6 is sort of like Ashes of Time in, oh. a, in, a, in some ways. Oh, in some ways. Oh, no. Fun fact, I tried to rewatch Ashes of Time and it quit again 20 minutes in, but <laughs> just putting that out there. So maybe there's not a Wong for... Every, no, I mean, or, there's one Wong for you at least. At least yes, one. At least one. <laughs> Maybe Wong. it's my Blueberry Nights, which I still have not seen. But, <laughs> but I'm excited to talk next week because I'm excited if you guys had differing opinions on the movie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to have the last word on this film that we're talking about today. And I still think undeniable masterpiece. That's it, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's my final thought. I can try and unseat it as my top film of all time, but what's the point? Ah, what's the point? <laughs> Don't try. It's too good. It's too good. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep Cut. Please rate and review because that helps us keep making the show. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when our next episode drops. Keep up with Deep Cut on Twitter and Instagram at Deep Cut Pod. And join us to talk about movies on our Discord server, to which you'll find a link in the description. Thank you to Justina Yam for our beautiful artwork. I'm Wilson. I'm Ben. I'm Eli. Take care, and we're looking forward to talking about more movies with you next time. Send noodles. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Deep, deep cut, cut, deep cut. 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 Do you really know your wife? My wife. What? Uh, Yo, I... Sorry.